Welcome to the Jay Martin Show. If you're new to the channel, my name is Jay. I'm an investor looking for the smartest home for my cash. If that is like you, then I think you're going to like what we do here. My guest today is Danielle DiMartino Booth, the founder of QI Research and the author of her own Substack, which I recommend you check out, DanielleDiMartinoBooth.substack.com. Today we go all over the map. We talked about uh, the broad number of data sets that the U.S. Uh, policymakers are putting in front of us every day, showing us how good the soft landing is going and how great life is for the average American in terms of job numbers and CPI and inflation and all this stuff, right? Um, what we did today is focus on the strategy, the game run between the policymakers and the media in order to decouple your life experience from the one you read about in the media and why they may be incentivized to do that. So horribly fun uh, conversation with Danielle today, as always. She's always fascinating. I always learn so much. Um, enjoy this interview. And as always, right beneath this, there is a link where you can subscribe to my Substack. Uh, which I publish every Sunday, and I absolutely love writing. I dive into the the nuances and biases and heuristics of the investor mindsets, and I love writing it, and I get great feedback, and I'd love to have you join the team. Hit that link below if you want to hear from me every Sunday. Here is Danielle DiMartino Booth. Enjoy. Okay, here I am with Danielle DiMartino Booth. Danielle, it's great to have you back in the program. I appreciate you coming back to talk to me. Jay, it's good to be back with you. So uh, as, as this summer that went by really quickly winds down. Yeah, it did. It did. I, I've, I've, I've finished summer. I'm back at work now. I feel like I worked maybe six days in the last six weeks. Shouldn't say that out loud, but I took a lot of time off. It was lovely. Good for you. That's fabulous. Yeah, but I'm back to the grind. Now, before um, we jumped in, I, I fired you just some ideas. And, and one thing that you came back to me with was one thing you feel like the public is really misunderstanding right now is the momentum of downward revisions in the macro data. Mm -hmm. I'd love you to elaborate and expand on that misunderstanding for me. And we'll use that as a jump off point to the rest of the interview. So I, th I think most Americans, they remember what th the first thing they hear. So they remember that, that this many jobs were created in the month of June. And, but, but your average American's never gonna go look back at Bureau of Labor Statistics revisions on a three quarter basis based on the, based on correcting their imputation of what a birth death model was and correcting that to what it should have been when they have full data sets on hand. On the other hand, if you were to stop the average American walking down the street and say, hey, did you know in the last nine months of 2022 that we actually created 816,000 fewer jobs than what was reported? Would that get their attention? I think it would. But but that's not, I mean, all of these types of releases are, are they're buried. And yet that's exactly what we saw. We saw for the second, third, and fourth quarter of 2022 that the BLS had overestimated and therefore overreported job growth by 816,000. You know, we'll get it. They did their annual benchmark revisions last year. That was bloody north of a million jobs, I want to say. And we look to the next set of annual revisions to come out on August the 23rd. But whether you're talking about industrial production, that's another big one that feeds. It's another recession indicator that feeds the National Bureau of Economic Research, whether or not they declare that the recession is starting in the United States or not every single month. 
we get this industrial production data reported, Ooh, but they revised down the prior month. That all goes into the math. Same situation with retail sales. So, <clears throat> you know, there, there's something to be said for, as my mentor at the Fed, Harvey Rosenblum, taught me, at inflection points in the economy, you look for momentum in revisions. So you're going to see upward revisions when you're coming out of recession. You're going to see that there are six months in a row that the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics was too low on that initial report for non-farm payrolls or where we are today. The Bureau of Labor Statistics has for six months in a row had to make downward revisions to what was initially reported. And my mentor always taught me that the revisions themselves have momentum. Yeah. And you have to pay attention to that. And what you're saying is that people pay attention to the initial reporting and not the revision, right? They look at the broadcast number, of course, of course. You know, is there a bit of a decoupling? This is a good like segue. Are you noticing a decoupling, therefore, in how the media tells you your life is versus how your life actually is in the in the general public at this moment? Would you agree with that? I, I would completely agree with that. Um, in, in fact, you know, if you if you look at if you look at the term in the terms inflation, disinflation and deflation. The thing that I hear most <coughs> from Americans is, well, gee, I'm still suffering really high prices. Well, yeah, that's true. But your next door neighbor lost his job at a factory because of disinflation. The rate at which prices are going up has slowed so much. Backlogs are coming down. Demand is dim diminishing. And therefore, because of disinflation, they they lost their job. And it, it again, it, it's all in terminology. We're seeing deflation in used car pricing. But if you were to tell the average working household uh, right now that disinflation was highly problematic for the U.S. economy, they'd probably hit you on top of the head. Because at, 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 on, a, on a level basis, they're still paying way more than they were before the pandemic hit. Yeah. Prices haven't caught back down. And in, in many instances, maybe they won't. But I think when it comes to cars, they will, for sure. And probably also, believe it or not, housing. Okay, so I want to I want to read you three other headlines that I wanted to bring up, but I, I feel like you, you're sort of going that direction anyways. And these are all headlines that I read last week. One was from the Wall Street Journal. It says how the U.S. economy is sticking the soft landing. Another was the Financial Times. Confidence grows that the Fed can deliver the soft landing. And the third was New York Times. Economic data bolster the soft landing hopes. So it's kind of in line with like, we'll tell you how your life is. Right. Don't worry. Everything's fine. Despite how you may feel about the affordability of your life. Don't worry. We've got the data and your life's great. Right now. You're right. Is there is it a stretch to I mean, there's a coordinated effort here, correct, by policymakers and media to broadcast a certain living standard that maybe then lays the groundwork for policy they want to roll out? Like, is there a, a, a sequence here? I don't think it's a stretch at all. I, I okay. think that. I think that, um, in, in fact, there was a, I, I, don't, I don't want to overuse the term, but there was a rather courageous uh, New York Times reporter who dug into other periods of time when there was such blanket consensus. And this reporter said, you know, this is exactly where we were in 2000. 
everybody was in agreement that everything was going to be fine just before we went over the cliff. And she went on to cite a 2007 Dallas Federal Reserve paper written by an economist when I was there. I did not agree with him at all, but he was writing in September of 2007 that the U.S. economy was going to have uh, that, that, that it was going to go into moderation, but not contraction. Again, September 2007. Two months later, we were technically in recession. And so this reporter was saying, be aware, be very aware, beware of when you look across the news streams as you did, Jay, and you see similar headlines coming from every direction. Be very aware that these can and have typically been historically inflection points when the economy is about to slide right into recession. Mm. Mm. Now, does this does this does laying this groundwork give the Fed permission maybe to uh, maybe to pause rates, maybe to pivot faster than they would otherwise because they can convince the public we got the job done, right? We've done our work. Is is that is that part of the sequence, do you believe? Um, I, I think it is. Uh, and, and you've heard from Fed officials. You know, they went into uh, into this last rate hike, into this last July rate hike, just gung-ho and unified. We are going to hike one more time. And now you see the pendulum swinging to the other side. There's almost this uniform agreement among Fed officials making speeches that <clears throat> that uh, that it seems like the general direction of the data is dictating that we can take a pause. Right. Uh, you know, that kind of uniformity is sanctioned on high. Okay. Jay Powell has to agree and his public relations, public affairs uh Minions have to go out and ensure that 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 the narrative aligns with what's coming from the chair's office, and that's where they are right now. They're in, they're in a place where they feel like they can pause. Now, that doesn't say squat about higher for longer or continuing to shrink the balance sheet. Those are going to continue. Okay, okay. So I got to ask your take on the inflation narrative right now, um, and maybe on the back of like some increased oil prices and diesel prices that we're seeing. And I think just last week, Biden walked back. He was planning to buy 6 million barrels of oil and and, uh, and backed out of that deal at the last minute saying prices were too expensive. He was being lauded, right? Uh, not too long ago for his timing of of draining the SPR at high oil prices and his, you know, his trading acumen, right? He was going to buy them back at cheaper prices. And he, he sent you know, did not, you know, almost bought six million then did it because prices were too high. What's your take on the inflation narrative right, right now, Danielle? So uh, to your point, I think that headline CPI uh, will likely kick up from 3.0% year over year to 3.3% year over year, primarily due to gasoline ga gasoline prices rising. Yeah. Um, they're at an eight month high right now and they're highly visible. High, They're the most visible price to your average US household because it's the one price that they see with the greatest frequency. Right. Yeah. So that's where you're most interest sensitive. You know, that being said, I've been talking, you know, since about a year ago because the, the pipeline was visible. Hey, people, there's one million units of, of multifamily coming online in 2023 and 2024. This will have an effect to say nothing of a few office buildings here and there that are being converted to a apartments, which is going to create even more supply 
we have to bear in mind that 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 where what input weights are food input in the in the consumer price index is twice that of energy shelter inflation which is by far the largest input to the CPI is four times that of healthcare. So it makes a big difference that you're seeing this violent boomerang turnaround in rents, which is exactly what you're seeing, regardless of the outlet, the data outlet, whether it's Zillow or apartmentrent.com or Zumter, whoever it is, they're telling you apartment rents are coming down hard because this massive supply that's been in the construction pipeline, it's finally on the market. So if you're some person who's, you know, who 12 months ago re-upped your lease, all you have to do is say, I'm moving across the street and your landlord's going to say, no, 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 I, I didn't mean it. I, we, 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 we can negotiate your rent, keep it the same, whatever. So, but it's, it's real, it's happening. And it's the largest input to the CPI. So while I think we're going to see the headline take a pop, Jay Powell has said, I focus on the core inflation. And I think there's downside risk there with that metric. Okay, walk me through the details of your average renter. What, what's the occurrence here, Danielle? What, just to make sure your I understand average, it. Your average renter right now, um, and they're starting to hear this from their buddies who are also renters. Um, your average renter right now is saying, A, uh, it's a lot less for me to rent than it is for me to buy. Right, yeah. That's different. It hasn't been that way for a while. Uh, but more importantly, your average renter right now is saying, if my landlord's going to try and increase my rent, fine, I'll just move. I have or, or I'll tell them I'm going to move because I know that I can move a block away and get a lower rent. Now, that's a, the flip side of where we were 18 months ago. You, you know, you've, you've made a couple of comments on the real estate sector. I'd love to know your thoughts on the commercial real estate sector. Um, I think it was this morning, Moody's downgraded their ratings on about a dozen U.S. banks or so. And it was sort of cloudy as to why, but one of the core reasons definitely seemed to be their commercial real estate holdings, which, which I feel like is something we've all been waiting for. Um, what's your take yeah, right there, now? The Capital One Financial, Ally Financial, they were also in that mix. So clearly there's some concern there about these auto loan portfolios as well as right. the commercial real estate portfolios. So we have to be cognizant of, uh, of stress, not just coming from the commercial real estate side, but from the household sector. Um, on commercial real estate, though, you know, I was really intrigued a few days ago because TREP, which tracks delinquency rates on a, on a monthly basis in different segments of commercial real estate, one of the segments that they pointed out was that lodging delinquencies had popped up. And I said to myself, okay, that, that's, that sector's been pretty quiet. Of course, domestic travel's really been taking it on the chin as discretionary spending levels come down. But my point to you, Jay, is Moody's was primarily focused on that office commercial real estate portfolio. Okay. But we're seeing distress and prices come down in multifamily. A lot of these massive multifamily uh, high rises were predicated on when they were in their planning stages on these offices being full. It's a long time to build a skyscraper full of luxury apartments. Um, so we're seeing stress really come out of multifamily. Retail continues to just get whacked. Walgreens just announced that they're closing 150 stores um, just last month. Um, CVS announced that it was going to be firing 5,000 people. You're, you're seeing continued distress <coughs> in commercial real estate, retail, and then you've got lodging. 
where you're seeing delinquencies start to pop up after being very quiescent for a long time as Americans did their revenge travel. That right. chapter's closing. That chapter's closing. So yeah. um, so there, there are very valid concerns, especially because there's no transacting going on in commercial real estate. So there's very little in the way of price discovery. Right. Okay. Okay. So we touched on commercial, the outlook there, you know, segued into multifamily, a pretty dire outlook there. You mentioned auto loan, uh, banks holding auto loans as well, which if I'm correct, as of a few years ago, and I'm not on top of this data, admittedly, it was the second largest bubble in the US was auto loan debt, I think aside from like student loans, maybe. What's the state right now of, of, of auto loan delinquency? And I don't know anything. What do you know about this? <laughs> So auto loan delinquencies are uh, with the unemployment rate at the lowest since 1969. Your auto loan delinquency rate on your subprime is at a, a at a record high. And more importantly, Moody's came out with a report a few weeks ago that, that illustrated that the delinquencies are moving up the income ladder. They're moving up the credit spectrum. <laughs> so a lot of aspirational buyers moved into the suburbs or the exurbs when the pandemic hit. So a lot of people who used to be renters in city centers became ba 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 mortgagees, and you know then they you know the, you've seen a lot of um, dissatisfaction and disillusion in this cohort because they've seen so much in the way of gee I wasn't expecting those property taxes, and I, I what do you what do you mean a HVA system costs that much what what what. And they also bought cars. They bought a BMW. They've got a thousand dollar mortgage payment. They they filled up these great big new homes, and uh, under the assumption that they were going to be outfitting their 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 home office, and never thinking a I'll never have to pay my student loan backs and loans back, and b I'll never be called back to the office. Well, Jay, maybe you can tell me how those two things are going right now. Yeah. Okay. And so in response to this. Are you seeing uh, the the clampdown in credit available to households and businesses in response to these delinquencies, or does one preempt the other? How how does that function? So um, you know, I think lenders are seeing very quickly because we didn't really have the beginning of a household default cycle, delinquency cycle, because it was so prolonged and delayed by. Uh, 19 months of rental eviction moratorium, all the foreclosures put on hold, car loans were put on hold for 12 months, for heaven's sake. Um, and of course, you know, there, there have been certain large states that have maintained these rental eviction moratoriums and what have you. So we have a very delayed household default cycle setting in, but it is pronounced. And, and, and that's why I think lenders are uh, planning on cancellation rates. And this is fresh data out of the New York Federal Reserve. Lenders are planning on rejection rates for all kinds of consumer loans to be at record levels within the next 12 months. That does not say soft landing to me. I'm Joe Q lender, and I know that over the next 12 months that I'm going to reject more applicants on a percentage basis than I ever have, whether you're talking about credit cards, increasing the limit of the credit card, or a new car loan. Okay. Yeah, that, and that's a really important point. And so, you know, we've walked through the just the the lack of transactions in the commercial space, the delinquency in lodging, the delinquencies in auto loans. A lot of this was delayed because of you know the one to two year moratoriums on everything. 
from paying your rent, paying your mortgage, uh, paying that auto, auto, auto bill, et cetera. Um, but we're now entering the reckoning, right? Where these bills come due and you can only, what do they say? Um, amend, pretend and extend for so long, right? You amend the terms to pretend everything's okay and extend the lifespan of the loan, but it's all pretend. And eventually those bills come due, which is why we're forecasting now record rejection rates. So this is the rate of people applying for credit that get to get, get rejected. Correct. Simple as that. Right. right yeah. Um, and, and correct. None of this sounds like soft landing to me. Uh, and in fact, we're also seeing, you know, speaking of rejection rates, completely different subject, but we're seeing 32% of initial jobless claims at the state level being rejected. So time, initial jobless claims at the state level so, being rejected. Yeah, so, so 32% of initial jobless claimants are being said, you know, they're being told bye-bye, you don't qualify for unemployment benefits. For unemployment benefits. Okay. So we, we wonder why these numbers are so low. Well- they're they're pretty darn low because so many are getting rejected. Okay. So what do you have to say to the, the individual who's watching this interview right now? And they're like, but Danielle, haven't you noticed the S&P is on a six-month tear, right? Bull market's yeah. back on. The game is back on, right? This is not a dire picture. little bump in the road. It's a gully, right? What do you have to say to that investor right now? I have to say that the two things that tend to fall the very, very last in cycles are... Uh, one the, the one thing that, that goes up last, up last is your unemployment rate. And the one thing that goes down last is your stock market. But you're you're already seeing, you know, it, it, let me let me tell you, Jay, there's nothing more telling than what angers people on my Twitter feed. <laughs> okay. So if I mention bankruptcies, yeah, I get this, I get this angry backlash that you're making up the data. And I'm like, uh, well, it's S&P or it's Bloomberg. They're just tallying. All they're doing is counting chapter 11 filings. So I don't know how I could make that up out of thin air. Um, but when there's a defensiveness at the end of a long, long, long cycle, I would I would argue that the cycle started in 2009. So when there's this defensiveness at the end of a very long cycle, it's it's extremely telling to see what angers people because they're saying, no, 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 no. Because if if we really do have Chapter 11 filings at the fastest pace since 2010, uh, we're looking in the rearview mirror at recession. And there's no justification for the stock market being where it is, which is why this is it's why you can't mention it on my Twitter feed because it, it gets them a little testy. Why does it get people testy? That's what I wonder. But why, how can data make you offended? But what, what's your take on that? You're, you're justifying your position. And your position is predicated on everything being hunky-dory. Now, if you've got a, a credit default cycle, a corporate credit default cycle underway, that, that, that just means that every day that the stock market is up is, is simply a grace period. Okay. You know, that sequence of events is really important. And as you put it, uh, you know, the, the last to fall is the stock market. The f and did you say the first to fall is the jobs number? Right. And there's a bunch of noise in the middle. Oh, no, the first. No, no. The, the last to increase is the unemployment rate. Your unemployment rate rises when you're yeah. already in recession. Yes. Or at least, yeah. you know, historically, you know, since the beginning of time. Uh, it might be different this time, Jay, because I hear that a lot too on my Twitter feed. <laughs> yeah, sure you do. No doubt. All right. So running, you know, we're running, 
wartime fiscal deficits, wartime. Yeah. Your, you know, your, your peak COVID spending was 7.6 trillion. And, you know, the last 12 months we've been, the U S government has spent about 6.7 trillion. It's as if we're fighting a war right now. The, the federal government is spending so much money and we're still seeing deterioration in, in the data. Imagine if they weren't spending like drunken sailors as if we were at war. Right. Now, all of these characteristics, like they're, I don't want to sound like a doom and gloom pundit. I swear I'm not. I'm an optimist and I'm, I'm a perpetual I'll bet all day long on human ingenuity and progress. But a lot of these characteristics are like the exact blueprint that you see towards the end of the cycle of an empire, the exact blueprint that the Dutch ran, uh, the exact blueprint that the British ran. And now we're we're seeing it in the US. Now, I talk to a lot of precious metals investors, a lot of sort of like anarcho-capitalists and libertarians who love the doom and gloom narrative. So I know I, I, I hear a lot of it, right? And I have to guard myself against having that bias. But what's your take on the current inning of the American empire, if, if you have one, Danielle? So when you're spending as if at war in the midst of a global pandemic, that might be okay, even though we spent way too much more igniting the nastiest inflation we've seen since the 70s. But when you're spending as if you're at war at a time of peace, you're just doing it to flip off the world. You're just telling the world, I'm borrowing like this, even though I don't need it. I'm just trying to buy buy votes. Okay. But I'm doing it just because I can. I've got carte blanche. I am the world's reserve currency. Do you not know I'm king dollar? I am the, US, the, 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 the treasury security. I am the world's risk-free asset. Deal with it. I'm doing it because I can. So that's the attitude that we have right now. Don't get me wrong. Germany's in recession. China's in the soup. And China doesn't want reserve currency. It's not that we're... If, if you were to look back and say, okay, over the last you know, 100 or years or so, because it was what, the 1920s that British pound sterling really started to fall. So let's say we've been playing this game for 100 years now. Um, you know, I would say that we're probably in the sixth or seventh inning okay. right now, yeah. which buys us a lot more time. And yeah. look, this this chapter, you know, I was at Camp Kotok in Maine, you know, visiting with 40 of my closest friends in finance, economics, blah, blah, blah. It's my 12th year at this economics gathering in, in the middle of nowhere in Maine. Um, and you know, just listening to them and 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 their reflections, you know, it's pretty obvious that, that, that there is going to be some time uh, for this empire. Um, and AI could even be very beneficial to it. But there is consensus that we're going to have to go through a gully before we come out on the other side. And the best analogy that I heard was, you know, before Amazon stock got to 3,300 from $100 a share, it went to 10. <laughs> so we're going to have to deal with the immediate job losses associated with AI, even though in the end, it should make the economy that much more productive and we'll all come out better for it as long as nothing happens in the intervening period while we've been 
printing money and 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 living on debt for no good reason. We didn't need to spend this money. The the federal government didn't need to spend this money, and yet we have been spending the money be, just because we can. Sometimes there's a price to pay when you least expect it. It concerns me that it's not just Silicon Valley or but that it's spread out to the healthcare sector, the factory sector. I'm talking about big layoffs, the retail sector. Yeah. Concerns me that at a time when the US economy, when the US labor market is headed into recession, is also at a time of a massive innovation that's going to initially consume jobs before you come out at the other end and immaculately create more than you ever had before. But you do see that as the end game or the next game, it sounds like. As long, again, as long as the U.S. doesn't have a price to pay going through that gully. That we don't know about yet. That we don't know about yet. And that could very well be nothing to do with AI per se, but more a breakage in society. Hmm. Because yeah. if there's one thing that could potentially push Neil Howe's fourth turning, propel that into motion, it would be this next leg down of job losses due to computers, robots, artificial intelligence. Inspiring um, some kind of a cataclysmic event, like like a civil war or something like this, correct? Something along those lines where you've got, you know, uh, a very divided country. We have that. <laughs> you already have that, Jay. You just stepped right into that one. We already have that. Yeah. We already have that. The backdrop's already set. The income yeah. inequality is already there. There's this program called the Employee Retention Credit. Get your ERC claim filed today. You know, it's pumping $30 billion a month into the hands of the wealthiest Americans in the form of business tax, business income tax refunds. It's being marketed and sold like crazy by ambulance chasers who are collecting a big fat contingency fee, even though every penny of a theoretical tax refund is, is due to the taxpayer. But you have programs that continue to go on in the background that are designed for the haves and not the have-nots. So income inequality, wealth inequality, they continue to, to widen at a time when the country's already divided. So if you you know, throw gasoline onto that fire. We don't know what we could get potentially on the other side. Which again is it's the it's the same blueprint, and always throughout history, those that generate the wealth coordinate very effectively with the policymakers who decide how wealth can be created. I want you to walk me through that uh, that tax return system one more time because it was off of my radar and you said this is funneling wealth into the hands of the wealthiest americans via tax returns well, um, so yesterday uh I, I was on a drive from grand lake stream maine up on the northeastern canadian border i mean you you get bell canada towers for heaven's sake you were out there but i was driving from grand lake stream to bangor so in that time i'm listening to bloomberg radio and i hear six commercials from all of these outfits. Kevin O'Leary is one of the representatives, for example, of one of these outfits that help you, you know, make your claim today. You too could qualify for up to $26,000 per employee for pandemic in interruption. They barely even say why you would qualify. Uh, it was created out of the CARES Act. If you were able to exemplify that in the year 2020, that your business was disrupted because of the pandemic, 
then you could make a, a claim that would come back to you as a business income tax refund of up to $21,000 per employee. Because God bless you, you stayed in business and we're going to refund you those payroll taxes. Yeah, okay. When Biden gets into office, he's like, well, this is awesome. This is going to buy me a lot of votes. So he expands it and extends it. So if your business was interrupted any time between in, in the first, second or third quarters of 2021, well, then you've got until April 30 of 2025 to file a, a, an employee retention credit. My business was interrupted by COVID claim. How did Biden expand it? He he expanded it to include any startup that rose out of the pandemic's ashes like a phoenix. Well, let me tell you, a lot of startups have been created and theoretical employees with them and then the claims made. So the IRS has already been very upfront saying, we cannot get control of the fraud. The fraudulent element is, one of my clients recently said, it's kind of like what subprime was in its final chapter. Just about all of those mortgages were fraudulent. Right. That's kind of where we are today. And when you see the hockey stick of a chart showing that when, when the employee, employee retention credit was first rolled, rolled out, it might have been 15, 16 billion a month. Big number all by itself. By last December, with these marketing machines in motion, getrefunds.com, innovationtaxes.com, same holding company, by the way, those two monsters in the space, but there are a ton of them. And again, creating, collecting a contingency fee, just like an ambulance chasing attorney. Mm -hmm. Of course. So once the marketing machine really got up and running, I, I must get five solicitations a day. I talk to people who get five solicitations, solicitations a day who would never qualify. They're calling anybody and everybody who's incorporated in any way. Uh, but so anyways, as of uh, June, I guess it was 29 billion or 28 billion. And then we hit July and we crossed the 30 billion a month for the first month. So uh, July hit an all time record. I lay you money. August is even higher. The IRS has told you that their backlogs of unprocessed claims for this mostly fraudulent program outnumber the claims that they've already processed. Okay. And I mean, on, on a 12 month run rate, you're talking about pumping about $400 billion into the U.S. economy. And, you know, two weekends ago, you read about soft landing. Last weekend, you might have read about how Americans are splurging on international travel. Well, they are, aren't they? Why wouldn't they splurge on international travel if they're getting a multi-million dollar tax refund that they don't merit? They're, they're taking, they're, they're, they're flying the mother-in-law, the father-in-law, the kids, the dog, the sister-in-law they can't stand. They're all in the front of the bus going to Paris and going shopping and staying in a luxury hotel because you got a couple million dollars that you don't merit, you didn't deserve, but yet you had some outfit collect 20% of this fee and boom, shows up in your checking account. Right. Very interesting. Okay. I, I need to jump back to one item we discussed just because we talked about the, you know, the inning, sixth-ish inning um, of the American Empire today. Um, I know people are going to want to know your thoughts on the, I don't want to call them competitive currencies because I don't see them that way, but there is some alternatives being floated as trade currencies right now. Yeah. Um, what, what's your take? 
My take is it's a, it's it's a bunch of BS until we see any follow through. Okay. Now don't get me wrong. All of these countries that are involved and all of these symposiums that are traveling to fancy places to talk about all of these alternatives, boy, do they love to do the saber rattling. What they don't love to do is to issue debt in anything but dollars. Interesting. So as, as sovereign entities, uh, they don't like to transact outside of dollars. And uh, they certainly wouldn't as long as the largest, deepest market on the planet, that's FX on a daily basis, $7 trillion of daily trading volume um, in, in the currency markets. 87% of that is denominated in dollars. Um, so until the facts of life change, I think it's a lot of fun to talk about de-dollarization and king dollars dying and it's oh so sexy. I get it. But until I see Saudi Arabia quit issuing sovereign debt in dollars, I'm just going to take a back seat and enjoy my popcorn. Yeah. All right. Well, people love uh, a doom story. You know, it's very seductive. You know, the, the crowd the fall of the empire. The and they call me a doom and gloomer. I, I, I'm not, look, I'm I'm just <laughs> data agnostic. And, you know, right now what we're seeing is what we're seeing. We're seeing the, the third largest exporting nation in the world, Germany. You know, we're seeing it in a third consecutive quarter of contraction. We're seeing the world's largest exporting nation, China, reporting its weakest export since February of 2020. So what country is going to be strong enough right now to step in and say, I'm the strong alternative? And India's simply not ready. It's just not. Right. Great demographics in India. Private demographics. Awful politics. Politics, yeah. Yeah. Well, you you know, that's just great points, right? We talked about the dire state of maybe North American real estate. Have a look at the Chinese real estate market, though, and the vacancy rate within the country. It's something like 22%. I mean, obviously, we know there's dozens of cities with nobody in them that now serve no purpose. Um, is that That's kind of the case, right? We printed money, they printed houses. You know, I mean, at the risk of highlighting the mental acuity of the leader of the free world, you know, if, if China was going to have invaded Taiwan, this would be the time. Yeah, it would be. It would be. So if they had the, if they had the means with which to do that, I think they would have done it a long time ago. And do you mean this would be the time because... They're probably as strong as they're going to be right now for a little while. From that perspective, I'm saying they're probably as relatively strong leadership-wise. As relatively strong leadership-wise, yeah. I'm trying to be very diplomatic here, Jay. Trying <laughs> really, really hard. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Thank you. Good. All right. Look, um, thanks for coming back on and chatting. It's always fun uh, catching up with you. And I always learn a ton. I always finish our interviews with like seven pages of notes, which I have front of me today. It's no different, but I do appreciate you and all the work you do. So thanks so much. Well, thank you for having me and um, shameless plug. You know, I'm doing really well on Substack, loving the new platform. So demartinoboot.substack.com. Love to have you. Um, And I can't wait for the next time we get together and chat. The world has always changed dramatically between our discussions, which is saying something. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that. Demartinoboot.substack.com. I'll pop that link in the show notes. So it's easy to access um, for sure. Check it out. And uh, thanks again. Thank you for your time. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor, follow or subscribe to this podcast, drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. 
All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.